Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, July 6th, 2017. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. We've got a mini-episode coming to you today on this abbreviated holiday week. First, we're going to talk about some developments in the 2018 Senate landscape. Uh, yes, it's you know only, I guess, 17 months away at this point, uh, but we're already seeing some candidates jump in and some Republican candidates who we expected to challenge some of those red state Democratic senators actually deciding not to run for Senate. We're going to dive into their decisions a little bit. And we're also going to preview President Donald Trump's second foreign trip to the G20 meetings in Europe that are starting today. A couple quick housekeeping notes before we get going. Remember, please email us questions if you have them to nerdcast at politico.com. And remember to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. We want to spread the word about the Nerdcast and grow to serve even more listeners, so any feedback you give us is extremely helpful in that regard. With that, let's introduce the panel this week. Hello, Senior Politics Editor Charlie Matessian. Hello, Scott Bland. Thanks for being here as always. We have National Politics Reporter Eliana Johnson. Hey, father-to-be, Scott <laughs> yep, Bland. Yep, couple, couple months. Daddy-to-be, well, six weeks, just actually, less than a couple months. baby out in the hot rain. No, 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 no. no. All right, there's a lot, a lot of context <laughs> missing from this conversation already. And senior reporter Nancy Cook. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Thank you for braving the hot rain to get to the studio today. So uh, here's the first thing we're going to talk about, our first data point, is the number four. And that's that's the number of expected, sure thing, Republican Senate candidates uh, for next year who, over the past six months, have suddenly decided not to run for Senate in 2018. The latest this past week was Republican Representative Ann Wagner of Missouri, who announced on Monday that she wouldn't run against Democratic Senator Claire McCaskill in 2018. So, Charlie, the the Senate map tilts heavily against Democrats in 2018, those 10 Trump states represented by Democrats up for re-election that we talk about almost every podcast. And yet, Republicans are not having the best time getting candidates into those races. So what what do you make of this? Well, as you might expect, I'm I'm a little of a contrarian on this. I, I just think it's overstated the idea or the chatter in Washington that Republicans are having a really tough time recruiting top tier Senate candidates this year. Uh, I mean, I don't think they're blowing out the doors, but they've got a couple of good ones. They've got a, a solid one in West Virginia against Joe, Joe Manchin. But my main grievance with this chatter is that it's still too early. Uh, I mean, it's, what, 17 months away from the election. And if you take a look at 2014, for example, that, that one of the best of the Senate candidates, Cory Gardner in Colorado, didn't uh, jump in until March 2014. So, Who's now the chair of the Republican Senatorial Committee. Exactly. So uh, to me, it's a little bit early. And, uh, you know, I think maybe by past cycles, you, you know, by the, the fall, the lineup was set for the next year or, or by the winter it needed to be set. But I also tend to think that all the rules are, are out the window now. I think we're operating. I don't know why it, you would think that. <laughs> <It's> weird. <laughs> Call me crazy. But yeah. I just think they're out the window. And I don't think they really apply. And I also think this is going to be a different kind of cycle than we're 
accustomed to because lots of Republicans are completely befuddled by President Trump and they still have no idea and no real feel for what the 2018 election cycle is going to look like. And and that is what this is about, really. I mean, this is a, sort of a proxy conversation for lots of Republicans aren't sure what to make. Should I be scared out of my mind that we're all going to have our clocks cleaned because of the president and his approval ratings, which are going to be really weak in 2018? Or is it going to be a different kind of circumstance? So I guess my short answer is I still think it's too early to really uh, sound the alarms about the recruiting class of Republicans. I think that's totally right. And even though Republicans won these four special elections and there is a playbook for how they should run, um, I think that hasn't totally seeped in. And for Democrats, there's a very easy playbook. They're running totally against Donald Trump, even though uh, many of them are running in red states. I think they're still going to run that way. Um, But for Republicans, it's much less clear what uh, winning formula is. And that's, I think, why you're seeing some hesitation on their part. Uh, to jump in, whether it's congressmen who have pulled back um, or others who have decided not to run. I don't think it's clear to them what it, what the environment's going to be like, whether it's going to be favorable or how they should run if they do get in. Um, I think it's they, they think it's a much more confusing environment or even if they think it's going to be a positive environment um, that hasn't totally seeped in uh, for them. I don't even think they need a, a winning formula. Republic, and I'm just talking here about Senate Republicans in 2018 because the map is so grim for Democrats, no matter how bad things are for, you know, Trump's approval ratings, no matter the, you know, no matter the conditions, the just the sheer numbers of who's up and where these senators are up uh, work uh, dramatically in the Republicans' favor. And you know, they really have to wet the bed to to not have a solid year. They just have to put it on cruise control. And when you take a look at the kinds of seats that Democrats have to defend and the kinds of seats that Republicans are defending, you know, it, it's just going to most likely be a you know a pretty solid Republican year, no matter who gets recruited. I think that that's the thing about this. It's not that so. For example, returning to the Missouri example, it's not that Ann Wagner is the only Republican who could beat Claire McCaskill. In fact, the Attorney General Josh Hawley is now getting a lot of attention from from Republicans looking for a Senate candidate. But it's the fact that she was expected for so long to run for that, and she was known to be preparing to run for this for so long and then suddenly turned around that that is kind of turned my head a little bit about this. I'm not entirely sure what it means. Like you said, it's these states, some of these states are so red that there are any number of people who could who could jump in and potentially win in, in 2018. And we don't know what the environment is. It's just uh, it, it speaks to how scrambled things are. That could be she just loves being a congresswoman so much that <laughs> she decided. So true. So true. Yeah. Uh, I, tend to th- I tend to think that maybe the White House was involved uh, in, in the Wagner case. Um, you know, maybe it's maybe it's a climate issue, meaning she wasn't sure or certain about why give up a safe seat when you're not sure what 2018 could look like. And there are signs that it might not uh, be a great environment to, to run in. But also Wagner was no friend to the Trump campaign in 2018. And I think if you're a member of Congress or a Republican who was not on the Trump train early on and you look at the base, the base is pretty happy with Donald Trump right now, given everything they've they've learned to live with him. Uh, I'm sure you, you have to think in the back of your mind or maybe even the White House is sending signals that you are not our candidate. And if you were expecting any kind of assistance in any way, it will not be forthcoming. It is interesting, though. Wagner is one of those types of House Republicans who's who's shown up in pictures at the White House a lot over the first six months of the year. Getting, I think she got pens from, from Trump at a bill signing very early on. And there, there are a few others who were not totally with him throughout 2016 who have kind of showed up there. 
over the course of, of 2017 to maybe kiss the ring a little bit, maybe show show people back home that everything's okay. You know, this is not the reporting that I've done because this is not, you know, I don't normally write about down ballot races, but like, is the White House organized enough to become this involved in the 2018 candidates? Uh, I think they're beginning to think about it. I think it's kind of chaotic over there right now. I mean, uh, what we've seen so far from the the White House in terms of how they're involved in the midterms uh, isn't really all that uh, impressive. I mean, take a look at what, what happened with Dean Heller. I mean, the president's political arm made a, a TV buy to attack the single most vulnerable Republican incumbent. Now, of course, they, they pulled back the reins on that, you know, after airing a couple of ads. But still, just the mere fact that that was allowed to happen tells you something. And then think about what else happened in the beginning of this White House. Mitch McConnell goes to the White House and says, it would be really helpful for us if maybe you were to name a couple of these red state Democratic senators to cabinet positions. You would open up some of our opportunities for us on the 2018 map. And the Trump uh, administration decides not to do that. And then they go and pick the number one most hotly anticipated candidate in Montana, Congressman Zinke, who Republicans had been working for quite a long time to get him to run for Senate. And then they take him and name him interior secretary. Uh, It just goes to show you there's not a a big vision strategic approach to the Senate map from the White House. Nancy, tell us. Where's Carl Rove? (laughs) Nancy, tell us a little bit more about what's been going on 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 that other side of the equation. Those Democratic senators from states like Missouri, where Trump won by 19. Montana, where he won by 20. North Dakota, where he won by 36 points. West Virginia is actually off the scale of this this page that I'm looking at, uh, which he also won by a lot. How are those Democratic senators kind of calibrating uh, that as they operate in the Senate now with an eye toward reelection in, in 2018? Well, I just think it's interesting because there was during the transition, you know, Trump reached out to a lot of those people. He had some of them at Trump Tower. He had some of them at the White House. Um, This was particularly true of Joe Manchin of West Virginia. There was some sort of talk that perhaps even he was being considered for a cabinet post. Same thing with Heidi Heidkamp. I think she was maybe for agriculture secretary. Um, I'm not remembering. But anyhow, there was like a fair amount of outreach to these vulnerable Democrats. But what's been interesting is that, um, you know, as they've got going on their legislative agenda, there really has been – you know, that's sort of fallen apart, that whole bipartisan outreach, bipartisan approach. And I think, uh, you know, the Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer surprisingly has been pretty good at keeping the Democrats in line. And they haven't necessarily found a cohesive message with which to attack Trump. But he has kept these vulnerable uh, Senate Democrats from, you know, partnering with the Trump administration on uh, the health care bill, let's say, or sort of siding with them on all these other things or helping them you know, make nominations go through faster. And so I, I feel like we saw that early promise there, but it just hasn't come about at all. Democrats are also really fortunate to have in, in Hyde Camp and Mansion just exceptional candidates for their states. I mean, any other kind of candidate. For this time, uh, particularly. For this time, for this president, any other statewide candidates would be toast right now. We wouldn't even be talking about the races. Those races would be cooked. But Hyde Camp is just a uniquely gifted and charismatic politician who's so well suited for North Dakota and uh, so well known there. And Mansion is also a really talented retail politician. I know he gets a lot of heat from the base. And uh, there's some a great YouTube video uh, of him getting berated by uh, some constituents, uh, you know, in the, I don't know if you saw this, the office, uh, the meeting in, in his office on YouTube. Uh, but for all, for all that, those two uh, Democrats are really fortunate to have those two running uh, because otherwise it would be a really, really tough environment. One last thing on the Senate map that 
as it develops and it will continue to develop, the next three months potentially could be very important as uh, folks go home over the August recess and think things out. 2018 continues to draw closer in the calendar. But no senators have announced retirements yet, which has not never happened in modern political history, you know, post-war political history. We've got Dianne Feinstein in California, a Democrat, is gearing up to run for re-election again. we got Orrin Hatch just announced this morning that he's raised another million dollars and is preparing to run for an eighth term despite the rumors that continue to fly there. And I wonder if that too just speaks to how Trump has scrambled everything about how people are kind of waiting and waiting and waiting to try and figure out what they might be able to accomplish in Washington, what they still want to do as opposed to hanging them up. My theory is that uh, it's it's that it's a function of two things. Number one is that the Senate is getting younger, not dramatically younger, uh, but I think younger in, in terms of average age. It's not a haven of uh, wheel, wheelchair-bound octogenarians anymore. <laughs> I mean, there are certainly you know a number of those kinds of folks up there, but that's not the, the it's not the same chamber. Um, but I think the uh, other thing is if you look on each side, on the Republican side, uh, Republicans aren't sure yet what to make of 2018. And often the the anticipation of what the climate will look like in the upcoming election will determine for a uh, senator who's wavering, that'll determine whether they stay or go. And I think the Republicans aren't quite sure what to make of it yet. Like Hatch would be a perfect example. On the Democratic side, uh, I, I would strongly suspect that if you're Diane Feinstein or, or someone like her, the, your calculus as you're thinking through, do I retire or not, is the urgency of the moment, which is, can I really do that? I've de- devoted my life to these principles in, in here, there's a president who I deem to be a clear and present threat to them, the most dangerous threat of my career. Can I afford to leave now or would I leave now against this kind of threat? I was going to say, ironically, because Trump ran against the Washington establishment, he's made these pillars of the Washington establishment feel even more indispensable. (laughs) Um, And so they're sticking around. I also just think once you've been a senator for a long time, particularly, you know, I'm thinking of Hatch, who I've covered quite a lot with the Senate Finance Committee, you know, you just get in this rhythm and you can't imagine not having a staff or people to sort of drive you around or help you do things. And I think it's very hard for, you know, members to figure out how to bow out of that. I think that might be one of the reasons that uh, some Utah Republicans are offering to raise money for an Orin, some sort of Orrin Hatch Foundation as a bit of a, a treat maybe to entice him to, to give up that seat and let some new blood in there. You mean like Mitt Romney? Yeah, new yeah. blood, Mitt. <laughs> well, also on Hatch, I think the, the rumors have been so persistent too because a bunch of his top staffers have left either his personal office or the Senate Finance Committee office to go into the administration in these various positions. And so, you know, he's bled a lot of the talent, uh, which I think has furthered those rumors. How could you not be bored, though, if you're Orrin Hatch? He was elected in, what, 76? So he's, you know, he's well over 40 years. How could you not just want to play golf if you're Orrin Hatch? He's <laughs> right. like 83. I mean, don't you want to take a nap in the afternoons and, Change you know? Change scary people. Just... Watch TV or do something, <laughs> hang out with your family. Like, are you guys years? saying you're not going to be a politico when you're 83? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well, we'll be keeping a close eye on the Senate landscape. As, like we said, as it continues to develop, we expect a lot more candidates to jump in over the next few months. Uh, we expect fundraising numbers and polling numbers and all that good stuff to to really uh, heat up. And so we we will do our best to keep you posted here on the Nerdcast. Let's shift now, though, to our second segment of this episode. And our data point for that one is uh, 20%. That's the size of a tariff that President Donald Trump is reportedly considering on major steel producing countries. And it's one of several big issues on the table this week today as he arrives at the G20 meetings in Europe 
uh, alongside Trump's first meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin, uh, which has soaked up a lot of attention heading into these things. So, Nancy, what what are you looking for this week coming out of uh, the G20? We've got the White House talking about pulling back on some major trade pacts. While we should note the EU and Japan are going forward on their own. And in the midst of everything else, relations with Russia are once again taking a front seat on the news and what Congress is talking about. I think initially there was quite a lot of uh, speculation over how the G20 would be approached and how Trump would, you know, interact with these world leaders, particularly um, Germany's leader Angela Merkel, and how they would sort of talk about trade. But then it came out that Trump was going to meet with Putin, and now I feel like all eyes are sort of on that. And I think there's a lot of questions about how prepared he is, um, you know. Putin is a pretty wily person and wily negotiator. Uh, Has Trump been briefed? Has he prepared? Uh, Does he sort of know what he's getting into? The White House has changed the meeting so that it's like a more formal setting, this bilateral meeting, so there will be aides there. Um, But I think that that is sort of overshadowing what was going to be a much bigger question for the Trump administration on how they interacted with these European countries, these major economies, uh, what the trade decisions would be, and also just how the U.S. sees itself. I mean, I think that the U.S. used to see itself as this major world leader. And I feel like under Trump, there's been some questions, particularly in trade, about, you know, does the U.S. need to police its own policy? Does it need to be more isolationist? And I feel like before the Putin meeting, perhaps the G20 and what Trump told these other leaders would have offered some insight into that. Eliana, what are you looking for kind of coming out of this week for the administration, for Trump personally, policy impacts? You know, I would say very quickly that the steel tariffs um, for a Republican administration wouldn't be entirely new. Trade policy is not something that um, I, that I've followed very closely. But I was surprised when on the campaign trail, I was with uh, Ron Johnson, the Republican senator from Wisconsin, and he was at a rifle manufacturing plant um, in a very small town in Wisconsin. And um, the owners of the plant were, you know, diehard Republicans, and they had reopened a plant. Uh, they were workers at a plant that had shut down, and they had pooled their money and reopened the plant. And I'd asked them what led to the shutdown in the first place, and they basically said in hushed tones that um, the steel tariffs put in place by the Bush administration had really hurt uh, the rifle industry. And I may be getting some of these details wrong, but I was surprised to hear this. And they said, you know, we love Bush, but this really, really killed our industry. So um, these things were not, you know, they're not entirely unprecedented, though. I think a lot of things that Trump does are talked about as, um, you know, wild moves or historically unprecedented because he so many things he does actually are. But in terms of... Uh, often the way he presents them. Yeah, right. Are. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, Priming the pump. He's the first first guy to use that phrase. Right. <laughs> um, um, but it'll be interesting to see um, how he handles European allies on a second time around um, and whether he's able to navigate uh, some of these trickier relationships. You know, one administration official had told me that on the last trip, Europeans were much friendlier behind closed doors and they sort of made a show of being hostile to the administration. So I think it, it will be interesting to see how this plays out. Um, obviously, the Putin meeting will be a big deal. Um, will be interesting to see, um, despite the president's resistance to talking tough on Russia, um, whether he will do so once he actually gets the chance to to come face to face with Putin. But can we address the elephant in the room here? I mean, here, think about the issues that that, that are before us and before the president now. Uh, North Korea, Ukraine, uh, documented Russian meddling in our elections, Syria, 
uh, you know, the Islamic State, there is so much for them to talk about. You know, even in, in addition North Korea to trade, is going to be probably the biggest issue. Yet, what is the coverage indicating? What are people talking about? Uh, it, will the president be prepared? I mean, it's, this is appalling that we're still having this discussion, that it hasn't been resolved, that the White House hasn't at least understood that much of the country still has serious qualms about the president's level of preparation for meetings like this, his approach, what he thinks. Uh, that, to me, is is really disturbing about this White House. How is that even possible that this far into the administration we would have this kind of discussion about our president? Okay. Am I, am I, I mean, I think we know what his level of preparedness is and the way he prepares for these meetings or the way he approaches them, which is in sort of an ad hoc, uh, you know, manner. Yeah, but Reagan and was it's not going to change. I know. But Reagan, for example, he was a fa- famous delegator and prepared in an ad hoc way. But no one ever accused him of not being prepared or you didn't have to. Charlie, when we go back and we find Trump's hand-edited radio addresses from, <laughs> you know, the 1960s um, on on all sorts of complex world issues, you're going to realize that Donald Trump was immensely prepared for all of these talks, too. I, I will it's, apologize. It's to look forward to when yes, we're all 80 yes. years old, still working, working the Politico for when, when the uh, Trump request. archives are excavated. M- maybe. But that, that to me is... He you, was thinking about all these things for decades. I, maybe that's true. I, I sure hope so. Um I want to jump back to something Eliana uh, just said a moment ago that I thought was interesting about European leaders acting differently about Trump in in public and private, and especially with a lot of people are looking forward to this meeting with Merkel. And um, I find it interesting that she's got an election of her own coming up in Germany, and the the thought among some German politics and policy experts, of which I am not one, <laughs> uh, that Trump is is kind of becoming a, a part of of that election and is. Uh, affecting how how Merkel acts toward him, both personally and and politically. Which I guess, if you think about it the other way around, it makes some amount of sense, right? I mean, we've we've seen any number of examples of American presidents or presidential candidates kind of calibrating their their foreign policy activities because of an upcoming election. But uh, it it's it's just interesting to see you know kind of evidence of how uh, Donald Trump is affecting European politics at the moment. You know, I mean, not for the first time during the Bush administration, of course, I think European leaders remember Jacques Chirac, you know, made a show of his anti-Americanism. And I think Merkel is doing it in a a more subtle way, but suggesting that, you know, America is no longer an ally, that she and the Germans are the new leaders of the free world um, because there's no Iraq war issue to rally the world around uh, against the United States. It can't. Uh, become as potent as it was during the early 2000s. But in some ways, you know, Trump Trump is a more polarizing figure than George W. Bush was. And I think Merkel is rallying Europeans uh, alongside her in the run up to her election in the same way that that Chirac and some other European leaders did in the early 2000s. But like Scott, I would say my command of uh, German politics is probably limited to the Bundesliga. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> aside from that, though, did she really say that Germany was occupying that said, space? She hasn't said that, but I think she's uh, she's tacitly suggested um, in her remarks when she says America is no longer an ally and the Germans need to step up. The, the reason I ask is is because what I find really interesting about the, their relationship and the, the, the clear animus between them is the idea 
that he is clearly bothered by her and doesn't like her on a personal level. Uh, I think you could see that from the, you know, the body language between the two, but also in some of the uh, the anonymous comments in the run-up coverage about uh, he is annoyed by the prospect of being scolded by Merkel. And to me, her her comments are more an indictment of. America leaving the space and vacating leadership rather than Germany well, trying think, to assert itself into the back. I, I think her suggestion is they have no choice but to. I also feel like, you know, since they all since the world leaders have interacted, I, I think, you know, Trump saying that he was going to pull out of the Paris climate agreement is one major policy thing that has happened. And I feel like for the Europeans, they were really aghast by that move, even if it's one that they could have seen coming. Um, and I feel like that will you know, sort of color things a little bit more and add to, you know, perhaps either an- more animosity behind the scenes, but se- certainly more animosity just publicly. To me, the, the uh, European reaction to uh, us pulling out of the, the Paris Accord uh, was surprising in that it reflected a, a degree of naivete and a lack of understanding of American politics, which was surprising to me, given how much they obsess over American politics. I mean, how could you, how could they have been so shocked by that? Because this, to me, is one of the least shocking things that Trump did. I mean, there's a, a wide body of opinion in the Republican Party that believed that and would have done that. That, that was really not an outlier act. You know, among Donald Trump's outlier actions, that was not one of them. I read it as less shock in terms of surprise and more shock in terms of this means a lot to them. And I think actually, Nancy, that that's an interesting point. I think that decision has kind of faded from the American political conversation. But the fact that it is still very much dominating how what what people in Europe are thinking about the Trump administration, I think, speaks to how much more important uh, it is seen. No, I think the G20 this week, apart from the Trump meeting with Putin, I think the world leaders are going to talk about trade, what to do on trade, and they're going to talk about climate. And I don't think that there there will necessarily be resolution for how Trump is going to work with them on climate issues. But those are the two things that are really on the agenda. So Nancy, my, my kids are becoming real news junkies in, 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 the, in the Trump era. And expo- trying to explain the G20 meeting to them, what, that, what should I tell them to watch? Like, what's a good thing for them to pay attention to? Uh, I guess just like how the leaders interact with each other, um, you know, how Trump interacts with them. I think who Trump has brought along is pretty interesting. Um, You know, he brought along much more of like the free trade globalist people, with the exception of Wilbur Ross, who is there. Um, but, you know, Steve Bannon stayed home. Peter Navarro stayed home. I don't think my kids will know who Peter Navarro is. <laughs> right. Well, they probably know who Steve Bannon is. Um, but I just think, you know, how they – is there any consensus? Like if the U.S. is left aside, is there consensus among other sort of economic powerhouses about what trade and climate looks like moving forward? Because if that's true, then the U.S. is sort of going to be off on its own path. What do you expect will cast the the larger shadow or bigger footprint here, uh, trade or climate change? I think trade right now because we already sort of know what the Trump administration thinks about climate change. And a lot of the leaders at the G20 are more in agreement on climate change. I think trade is the question that's really up in the air right now. All right. That's what we'll be watching out for at the end of this week. Our abbreviated Nerdcast episode for an abbreviated week is now completed. Thank you for being here, Charlie. Thanks for having me, Scott. As always. Eliana, thank you very much. Thanks. Nancy, thank you. Thanks. And of course, as always, thank you to our listeners. Remember, if you have questions, please email us at nerdcast at politico.com. And also remember, you can subscribe, rate us, and if you have time, write a written review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. 
Also, a big thank you to executive producer Bridget Mulcahy, illustrator Bill Cookman, and Politico web producer and nerdcast researcher Zach Montalaro. We will talk to you again next week.